Welcome back to this afternoon's uh, session. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to you this afternoon, uh, Kim Bromfield, um, who's a senior executive uh, and responsible for corporate and public sector reporting at SAICA. Kim is a specialist in the area of corporate reporting. She has more than 15 years of experience in providing training and accounting, uh, accounting opinions as well as advice on the application of international financial reporting standards. Kim was an IFRS partner with KPMG in South Africa for more than 10 years before joining SAICA in May of 2015. Kim oversees SAICA's portfolio of corporate and public sector reporting. Her main focus is to equip members and influence stakeholders in the areas of financial and management accounting, integrated reporting and thinking, regulatory and financial services within the private and public sectors. Kim is a member of the Financial Reporting Standards Council, otherwise known as FRSC, and represents the FRSC on the Accounting Standards Advisory Forum, or ASAF, which is a technical advisory body for the International Accounting Standards Board, the IASB. Kim has served as a member of the Accounting Practices Committee of SAICA for many years and was previously a director of the Accounting Standards Board, which is responsible for issuing accounting standards for the public sector in South Africa. Before accepting to, to present at today's forum, Kim asked me how many accountants would be in the, in the room. So just by a show of hands, uh, do we have any accountants sitting in front of us? Okay, Kim, so it's about 200 to 1, which I, I think is a fair contest. <laughs> Kim, please. Thank you. Thanks so much, Costa, and um, good afternoon, everybody. As they said, um, how do you liven up an actuary's conference? Well, you invite an accountant, so um, <laughs> great, to, great to be here this afternoon. Um, and yeah, it's, it was great when uh, Costa contacted me to say, well, to ask me if I'd like to come along and, um, and speak at the conference. We go back many, many years when Costa was actually at um, Alexander Forbes, and I said, yeah, absolutely, any opportunity to, um, to come and chat to you guys about the wonderful issues in IS-19. Um, I did say to Costa that perhaps I should have worn a bulletproof vest because I'm sure that a lot of the things that I'm going to be saying this afternoon, I'm sure that many of you are not going to agree with me. But then I guess that is the whole point about having debates and discussions. <clears throat> so just to, to know that um, the views that I'm expressing are my personal views, they're not necessarily official psycho views. Um, but these are my personal views in terms of the application of um, IS-19. So in this session this afternoon, what I um, would like to focus on, and I'd like it to be you know, interactive, so if you have any questions or any comments, you know, please feel free to make them as we go along. So touching on a couple of things, accounting versus statutory valuations, the IS-19 definition of defined benefit plans, and by implication, that then either scopes in or scopes out plans into defined benefit accounting. And then the big, big thorny issue, and that is the discount rate in IS-19. And that, I think, is the source of all of the tension between the actuaries and the accountants. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then just a couple of other aspects um, may, may or may not be big issues in your lives. Um, what's in profit or loss these days? What's in OCI? What is OCI? OCI is other comprehensive income. So it's not in your profit or loss. It's in another part. Uh, ultimately, everything goes in, into equity. 
Um, but if we say it's other comprehensive income, it doesn't affect your bottom line um, in, in your income statement. <clears throat> what do you deal with, uh, how do you deal with member contributions um, to retirement funds, dealing with costs and also surpluses? Now, what I'm going to be talking about this afternoon is about the current standard, the current IS-19. Now, IS-19 was probably first introduced uh, way, way back, um, probably the early 90s. And yes, in many respects, it probably wasn't written with you know, a lot of the plans that we have today in mind. So in some instances, it probably works okay, it works fine, and in other instances, maybe it doesn't work you know, as well, and say based on some of the comments that I've, I've heard um, from the Actuarial Society, I think a lot of you think perhaps it doesn't work. So we're talking now about the current standard. SICA, together with the International Accounting Standards Board, is hosting a, um, some roundtable, a roundtable discussion in Johannesburg. I think it's on the 24th of August. Um, so for those of you who are interested and are able to come along and you want to come and voice your frustrations about the current standard, that's the opportunity or the place to do so. That is then talking about the issues that you have to say, well, what should a new standard look like? What should the new requirements be? But at the moment, we are bound by the current standards and maybe they don't give us what you might think should be the right answer in all cases, but that's what we have at the moment. Okay, all right. <clears throat> so just to set the scene, we have a question. I'm not quite sure. How do I go about the questions? Do I need some assistance from no, the back? Just ask it. I just ask it. Oh, that's all I do. I just ask it. Oh, wonderful. Okay. All right. So. Um, the IS-19 net liability or net asset should be the same or similar as per the statutory valuation uh, report that's submitted to the Financial Services Board. Is that statement true or is that statement false? So on your little keypads, if you think it's true or you think it's false and wonderful, that 72% of you got the answer correct, the answer is in fact false. Okay. And the reason why this is a good starting point is because one needs to acknowledge and recognize that those valuations are different and that they're not performed for the exact same objective. So the regulatory um, return has its own requirements for the valuations for and perhaps for determining funding, etc., what the contributions should be, what the solvency is, and all those wonderful things. From an accounting perspective, IS-19 has prescribed the approach that should be followed to ensure consistency from an accounting perspective. So they're not, they're not aimed to achieve the same objective, and hence they could yield, and they do yield, different answers. And the reason why I started off with this is that the objective when you come to do the IS-19 valuation is not to try and get as close to the statutory valuation as possible and to therefore make all sorts of adjustments so that you get back to your statutory valuation. That's not the purpose of the IS-19 valuation. They have totally different starting points, totally different objectives. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so... In terms of IS-19, there are two types of post-employment plans, defined benefit, 
defined contribution. And defined benefit plans, you'll see, are defined as something that is not a defined contribution plan. So it's the residual. So what is a defined contribution plan? Well, that is a plan in which the entity pays fixed contributions into a separate entity or a fund, and the, and the entity, the employer, will have no obligation, legal or constructive, to pay further contributions if the fund does not hold sufficient assets to pay the benefits that relate to current and past service. So if there's any risk involved where the employer may have to make good and step in in the future, the plan is a defined benefit plan under IS-19. Even though from an actuarial perspective or from a you know, statutory perspective, something might be regarded as a defined contribution plan, if it doesn't meet the definition in IS-19, as a, to, to be a defined contribution plan, then it will be, under IS-19, a defined benefit plan. So what does this mean? Okay, and I've just listed a couple of things. I think everybody um, has gotten their heads around the post-retirement medical benefits. Many, many years ago, people didn't think that they should be treated as defined benefit plans under IS-19, but I think everybody's on that, on, the, on that same page. And the reason why that's a defined benefit plan is because the promise, generally, is to either pay whatever the contribution rates are that are set by the medical aid, or a contribution towards those during the person's retirement. So effectively, the risk stays with the employer to pay whatever those amounts are, and hence all your post-retirement medical benefit schemes are all defined benefit plans under IS-19. Okay. All right, then we start with some of the, the more controversial ones. So what happens if you have a plan, and I understand you might have a situation where you've got potentially within a scheme a proper defined benefit plan, and then you've got people that currently are on, let's call it a defined contribution plan, but at retirement they are able to either take their benefit and run and do whatever they want to do with that, either go to a third party insurer, buy an annuity with them or do whatever they're going to do, or they can take their, their value and they can buy into the entity's defined benefit plan. Now, a couple of things, obviously, I mean, at the risk of generalizing, is we've seen ones where the entity cannot say no. So whatever the, you know, so if, the, if, the, if the, the member at retirement says, I want to buy in, I suppose the only thing perhaps that the fund could do to, um, to, in a way to say no is to perhaps make that, that, that buy in price extremely high. So perhaps the member then say, well, no, I'd rather go along to Old Mutual or whoever and go and buy a policy with them. Um, but typically we, we, we've seen rules where the entity or the fund cannot say no to the, um, to the member buying in. And then, of course, from that point onwards, who bears the risk? Well, the employer bears the risk if it is a proper defined benefit plan from that point onwards. 
So the million dollar question that has been asked is, so what do you do on day one when this person signs up and is effectively on the DC plan all the way up until retirement and only at retirement do they make their choice? What do you do, say, on day one? And I understand that some practice has been to treat them all as defined contribution under IS-19, and only on retirement do you then flip them into defined benefit plan accounting. Well, unfortunately, based on the definition in IS-19, because the employee or the member has this choice and the entity cannot say no, effectively the benefit that's been promised to the individual is either a DC type benefit or a DB benefit. And because it's a free choice of the employee, who could be sitting with the risk? The employer. And as a result, if we then go back to our definition, the entity could be obliged to pay further contributions if the assets are insufficient to meet the benefits that are promised, even though, yes, that's only going to happen way, way into the future, but that, under the current definition, would scope those into being defined benefit plans from day one, not at retirement date. Huge implications. Unfortunately, it's not just a sort of a growth, if I can call it a gross up, in terms of assets and liabilities getting to the same net number and its note disclosure, because of the measurement aspects in IS-19, which we'll get into, you're likely to end up with different measurement issues. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about the measurement just now, the moment just in terms of, of classification. These would generally be classified as DB plans under IS-19 from day one. Okay, so if you want to ask any questions as we go along, please feel free to do so. Yes? Perhaps I shouldn't be encouraging questions. Hey? What am I doing? Where's my bulletproof vest? Thanks for the opportunity, Arthur. I can understand where you're coming from, where at retirement, person got the option between a DC benefit or a DB benefit. What completely baffles me is where at retirement, DC contribution, the DC amount gets converted to a pension, yet you're holding a massive liability for the so-called option. There's no DB arrangement, the DC runs up to retirement, at retirement converted to a pension of equivalent value, yet IS-19 says you're going to run this amount up from now to retirement at a different discount rate. You pick up a massive liability, it just doesn't make sense. Okay, we'll get into the measurement aspects just now, but the point is, is that you've given the member a choice of either being completely exposed to whatever, you know, the pool of assets yields, or he's able to get some fixed benefit in the future. Because if, because once, once he retires, Correct. And that's what I'm saying is that, yes, even though it's only after retirement, the point is, is that you've given the person a choice from day one. And that therefore puts you into the defined benefit bucket. Maybe the issue is the measurement side of things. Maybe that's where the, the issue comes. Okay. All right. The other um, issue that I'm aware of is where you might have a guaranteed minimum pension, 
with upside going to the beneficiary. So if the pool of assets you know, performs really well, the member gets wonderful upside, maybe they get all the upside. Or maybe they only get limited upside because maybe um, the pension is going to increase based on targeted pension uh, you know, increases subject to affordability. So maybe they don't get all of the upside, but they get some of the upside, for example. Okay? Because of that guaranteed minimum, going back to our definition here, that entire plan is a defined benefit plan. One doesn't say, well, at this point in time, oh, the assets are performing well, there's no obligation or risk of me having to step in and make good, therefore I'm going to treat it as a defined contribution plan, and only when there's a shortfall do I then account for it, you know, to, to show the obligation. The entire plan will fall into defined benefit plan accounting from day one. And again, we could have some issues with measurement then creeping in. Yes? So say, uh, say we've got a computer DC fund and they just decide to uh, offer the option to DC members to, uh, to um, actually you, you create a work profit pool for uh, in-fund members and you offer no guarantee. So if there's enough, not enough money, you're not going to top it off from the employer side. Is that then a pure DC uh, arrangement? So there, if the value of the pool falls to zero, you say, sorry, there's no money, I don't pay you a cent. So if the entity, if the employer is never at risk, and it's not based on the most likely outcome, and it's highly unlikely, it's, it's absolute. If the bottom falls out completely, would the employer have to step in? If their answer is no, then it could go down to zero, and we say, sorry, there's no fund, there's no more funds, so here's your zero and that's all there is, then you're into pure defined contribution plans. Okay. But as soon as there's any type of a guarantee, no matter how remote it's likely to ever be called upon or whatever, you're into DB accounting. The reason why I ask the question is that National Treasury actually wants to encourage people to uh, retire in funds, but obviously employers, if there's a, some sort of a, a liability for them, they'll be very reluctant actually to offer that. So you should just then be very clear that the employer won't step in under any circumstances. Well, it comes down to whatever's been agreed, whatever the rules are, and it comes down to the economics. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we then move on to the real thorny issue. And I think in all the discussions that I've had with actuaries over the years and the tension with the accounting standard, I think all stem from this, and that is the discount rate in IS-19. So the discount rate, we'll come to the sort of present value calculation in a moment, but the discount rate is prescribed. It is not, it's not said to be the most appropriate rate, it's not meant to reflect the assets that you've got um, you know, to, to match the liability. It is simply high quality corporate bond rates. That's what it is. In the same currency as your liability. And if you don't have a deep market in high quality corporate bonds, you must use the government bond rates in that same currency. Okay, so 
This is not debatable. This is exactly what IS-19 says, okay? And I guess one could try and figure out, well, what was the reason? Some people are of the view that they were trying to come up with like a risk-free type rate. Some people were saying, well, um, it's maybe not 100% risk-free, I guess, you know, not, not even government bonds. If you look at Greece, nothing is sort of risk-free. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Costa. <laughs> um, but, and also it doesn't reflect any non-performance of the entity or anything of that, of, the, of that nature, but that is the rate that the standard prescribed. And I said, this goes back when the standard was drafted and probably came into effect, to say, in the early um, 1990s, effectively. Okay, so that is the rate. High quality, we're talking about pretty much double A as being still high quality. Of course, there's a little bit of interest. Those of you involved in other parts of the world, you know, with the whole downturn of the global economy and there not being too many double A rated corporate bonds, people then said, well, could we just simply find almost the highest rated bonds? And the answer is no, they're still not high quality, even though, you know, they might be the highest rated bonds. So they've got to be high quality. So in South Africa, we do not have a deep market. Nowhere in Africa do we have a deep market in high quality corporate bonds. So on the entire continent, we, are, we need to use government bond rates. Unless, of course, just for those of you who happen to operate in other African countries, if you've got liabilities denominated in US dollars, you are going to use high quality corporate bonds denominated in US dollars. And yes, there are those because you're looking to the US market, you're not looking into the Zimbabwe market or whichever market where that liability exists. So you would be required to look to the US market if your liability denominated in US dollars. Okay, if it's in rands or any other African um, currency, no deep market and you're using government bond rates. Okay, now there are obviously some problems with this, as we've discovered. There are a couple of countries in the world that don't even have government bonds. So it's like, so then what rate are we supposed to use? But anyway, but you can see when the standard was drafted, they didn't contemplate all of those um, situations. Okay. All right, so the basic requirements in IS-19. At the top, I was chatting to somebody during lunch about actuaries and us accountants. We think actuaries are born with crystal balls. And you are able to determine the future. Okay, so that's what the top part is all about. That's your crystal ball. The best estimate of the future cash flows, reflecting the timing and the amount. That's on one side of the fence. And on the other side of the fence is the discount rate that I've just mentioned. And you'll see the no entry sign <laughs> in the middle. Okay. And I've done this deliberately because that is the way the standard is drafted. That you work out your future cash flows based on your best estimates of what you think is going to happen, whatever the rules are, etc., etc., all of those wonderful things. And then you simply discount to the present value. And that is your IS-19 um, gross liability, the present value. Okay, so 
What does this mean then for some of the things that we have mentioned? So, for example, the option at retirement to then, um, you know, take your DC benefit and to buy into the DB plan of the employer. And I think, Arthur, this is the things that, that, that you were mentioning. So effectively, and I think it's not just a, oh, well, we'll just bring you know, assets and liabilities and they'll equal each other. So if today your DC benefit is, let's just say, worth today a million, what IS-19 then says is, okay, you've said to the member, at retirement, they can either take their DC pot and do whatever they want with it, or they can take that pot and buy into the DB fund. And let's say it's at the, the current market or the current going rates um, at retirement. What IS-19 says, once this is in the DB bucket, it then says you need to determine your best estimate of your future cash flows. So what do you believe are the future cash flows going to be? And even if you use what the current value is today as, you know, as your sort of proxy for what the cash flows are going to be in the future when you take your DC and you convert it into the DB, that's your gross amount at the top. That's the gross amount. And then what are you going to do? you're going to discount it at this rate. And that is the answer you get under IS-19. Okay, I do have some examples which we're going to, to look at. Similarly, with the guaranteed minimum pension, um, with, with any upside, as I said, where you've guaranteed a, a minimum amount and either the um, member will get all upside, or maybe you're targeting inflation increases subject to affordability, but there's that guaranteed um, minimum. Again, you've got to apply this model. What is your best estimate of your future cash flows? And then you're going to discount it at the rate specified in IS-19. So let's have a look at an example. I'll come back to your question in a moment. So let's have a look at an example. So let's say we've got 90 that's invested in an asset pool on day one. Okay, this is very simplified, okay, it really is. And let's say that the beneficiary will get the value of the asset pool at retirement, but they're guaranteed to get a minimum of 90. So that's where that DB classification kicks in because we've got that guarantee. So this whole plan is a DB plan. So on day one, what do you think is the discounted gross liability under IS-19? Do you think it is 90? Or do you think it's not 90? <clears throat> okay. All right, I guess the answer had to be it can't be 90, because if it was 90, it would, it would make sense, and that clearly just, <laughs> that just can't be right, can it? No. Okay. So you end up with it not being 90. So if the expected return on the plan as, on the assets, let's say is 15%, and the government bond rate is 10%, then your discounted gross liability 
will be more than 90. So on day one, you'd have assets of 90 and your liability will be more than 90. And that is going to reflect a deficit under IS-19. And I understand this is where the tension exists. Is there really an economic shortfall? And the answer is probably no, because I've got the 90 assets and the person is going to get the value of those assets. So on day one, well, one would expect in a fair value world, the liability to be 90. But IS-19 does not currently use fair value. As I said, this is the model that we have. Best estimate of cash flows, and then you discount at this discount rate, and that is the number. Okay, so unfortunately, yes, we end up, from an IS-19 perspective, showing that there's a shortfall when, in economic terms, there isn't. But that, unfortunately, is just a function of the standard. Yes? Just two, two issues. That word up top there, mutually compatible assumptions. In an actuarial world, uh, you've got to be compatible between what you project forward at, what you discount at, because the one will allow for increases, the other will allow for returns on investment. The accountants seem to be ignoring that, mutually compatible. How can 15 be compatible with 10? The second one is, this is a really important issue, because you're showing a deficit for accounting purposes that isn't there. And a company is saying, we've got some big clients, saying, uh, bringing deficits through on their balance sheets. And we ask accountants, what does this number really mean? Can you explain that? No, it's just done in terms of a couple of formulae which we're obliged to apply, tick, tick. But in the real world, it's causing problems with companies. You're now saying, we want nothing to do with retirement funds. If this is the case, and I think the accounting profession through this is actually causing a big disservice to, to employees. Okay, so these are the, the comments that we, we have been receiving. Now, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not new. I'm brave. So, okay. Not personal. Yeah. I didn't write the standard, no. So, well, that was why I deliberately drafted the slide the way I did. And that is because this is the way the standard is written. Now, I, I mean, I, I know that none of you are accountants, but if you look at other accounting standards, for example, financial instruments. So if you owe the bank, 10 million rand, and you must pay the bank 10 million rand in five years' time. In financial instrument accounting, on day one, you can say, well, what is the current market rate? And let's say it's 10%. And you guys are all good at maths, so I'm hoping to give me what the answer is, okay? So, what did I say? 10 million rand in five years' time at 10%. Um, what is the present value of that? And you're going to simply carry this at what we call amortized cost. So if on day one the interest rate is, say, 10%, you're going to now effectively take your present value, which you determine at 10%, and you're going to write this thing up to eventually get to your 10 million at the end of five years. 
But if somebody was to say to you in current terms, what is the value of your liability? It is not what's sitting on your balance sheet. And it's six million, isn't it? 6.2 million, wonderful. <laughs> Marvelous. So on day one, your liability is 6.2 million. Okay, what's it at the end of year one? <laughs> making, making him work for his money. Okay, let's just assume it's 6.5 at the end of year one. All right? Now that is the amortized cost. But if you were to have gone and worked out what the fair value was at that stage, it may not bear any resemblance to the 6.5. But that is simply because the accounting convention is amortized cost. If you then have another liability, like a, a decommissioning liability, maybe you're a mine and you have to decommission the mine. The standard there says you use your best estimates of future cash flows and you use a current interest rate that even reflects your non-performance risk and all sorts of wonderful things, etc. And that's the rate that you use. But yet at the end of the day, both of them might result in an outflow of 10 million. But along the way, you show these at different amounts. And that is just differences in accounting convention. Many of you, I understand, also do insurance um, actuarial work. And I'm sure you're looking forward to um, the, the new IFRS 4 on insurance contracts. And again, you're going to have similar issues there where you might have assets backing, you know, so you've got policyholder assets backing liabilities. You cannot use the return on the assets to discount the liabilities. So again, you've got all of these tensions and they are what they are. So you'll see, that's what I'm saying, is under the current standard, this is the model. Now maybe this works if you don't have things linked to inflation or linked to the current value and it's simply you will get 10 million when you retire and then you're just you know, discounting that 10 million. Maybe that does work. Is the alternative to go full fair value? that you have to just value your liabilities at fair value. I certainly think that would address a lot of these accounting mismatches, because in this example, if you were to value your liability at fair value, well then on day one, the fair value is 90. And if at the end of year one, your asset pool has now increased to 120, in a fair value world, your liability would be 120. Okay. so. As I say, I, I hear the concerns, but they are as a result of an accounting model that currently exists. Okay? But these are the issues that we want raised at that forum um, in, in Joburg. So Arthur, I don't know if you're planning on being there, um, but, but those are the issues that, that need to be raised. Some of you might be familiar with some schemes in Europe, which are called contribution-based promises. So they basically almost allow the member to port their sort of pension. So each employer pays current sort of contributions, either actual or notional, and they, whatever return on there goes to the member. And again, if you apply this IS-19 model, you also get into these similar situations which show a shortfall or a deficit, or maybe even a surplus, depending upon what the discount rates are doing, when in reality there is no mismatch. 
Okay, and the, and the IFB hasn't found a solution yet for those. Um, and I think that the issue then, again, is all about this discount rate. That is the crux of it. So hopefully, ultimately, we can find a solution. But as I say, without preempting anything, it does look like possibly fair value is the way to go. But then you'd probably find that other schemes that are more simpler, if I can put it that way, people are going to say, well, we don't want to have to go and work out the fair value. So I guess you're not going to be able to meet everybody's needs. And I'll come back. Do you still want to ask your question? No, you're okay. Okay, all right. So, yes. Okay, so just two questions. On the, um, <clears throat> on, on the deep and liquid corporate bond market and, and the requirement for AA, is the AA, the AA is a global scale as opposed to a national scale? And would the bank, corporate bond, the bank bond market in South Africa not be characterized as deep and liquid? I mean, Barclays have just done a study which indicates that 80% of our corporate bonds, listed corporate bonds, did remark to market in the last two months, which is consistent with global turnover ratios, which are closer to 50%. So, you know, I'm just trying to work out why we come to the conclusion that there isn't at least a segment of the local bond market which is sufficiently deep, liquid, and high quality. When you say the global bond market... Sure, I'm just talking like US or UK bond markets. Okay, it's, it's got to be in the currency. Sure, so I'm saying the local bank bonds, so... And so what, and what, what are, what's, the, what's the ratings? So the ratings will be double A on a national scale. And how many are there? So the, um, in total, our listed debt market is about 85 billion. No, no, I don't so mean the, bank, I don't mean the, the, the rand value. Okay, how many bonds are there? There's, um, there's, well, there's six issuers. And they six. Have issuers, but then there's multiple issues. So there's probably in excess of 150 issues to 200 issues. Would that not... By the same issuer? No, by different issuers. Oh, by different issuers. Yeah. So oh. I'm just... I mean, isn't that a proxy, a sufficient proxy for it? Okay. Generally, as I say, whenever assessments have been done, the feeling is that we do not have a deep market. Until now, Australia has not had a deep market. They are doing an exercise at the moment to see if they do have a sufficient sure, deep so market. Sure, so Milliman just completed that study and they... I think Milliman have just done that study, right? In for the Australian corporate bond market and Milliman indicated that the Australian market is sufficiently deep and liquid. And that's where, I'm, you know, that's the kind of one of yeah. the places where I'm extrapolating so from yes, the Milliman uh, study as I in say, Australia. I guess just based on the information to date, okay. so... That's something, if, if you believe that maybe things have changed, that we need to, to look at it. Okay. Um, perhaps we can, we can chat you. about it. Okay. All right. Okay, another example. Um, let's say the expected return on assets is 15%. And based on this, the targeted inflation increase of 80% of CPI is considered affordable. Government bond rates are, say, 10%. If, a big if, if the assets were invested in government bonds, the target inflation increase would not be considered affordable. Assume only 60% of CPI would be considered affordable if that were the case. So the question is, is what inflation assumption should be used to determine the undiscounted future cash flows? 80% of CPI or 60% of CPI?
Okay, all right, I was thinking by now we would get more on the green, but maybe statistically, you know, I don't know. Okay, so most of you actually went for 80% of CPI, which is the correct answer, okay? And again, it goes back to, if I can, <laughs> it goes back to my fence that you've got to come up with your best estimate of future cash flows. Now, if you have got assets... Oh, I didn't actually answer your questions, did I? No, Arthur. Sorry, I suddenly realised about the mutual compatibility things. Okay, sorry. Um, so just now you were saying, well, are they really mutually compatible? Well, the point is, is that just because your government bond rate, which is the discount rate, is 10%, but your assets are invested in something earning 15%, and that is what's driving the affordability. And we conclude that increases of 80% of CPI are affordable, then how can your best estimate of future cash flows be based on 60% of CPI? That is not your best estimate because your assets are not invested in government bonds. They're invested in assets yielding 15%. So, as I said, these, and that's where the mutually compatible assumption. So, the mere fact that your discount rate is 10% doesn't mean that you must use 10% as the growth of your assets if your assets are not invested in government bonds. To me, that is mutually incompatible or whatever because you know, your assets are not invested in government bonds. So you can't assume that they are and therefore use the 60%. But yes, as we are saying, once you've present valued at this other rate, you get a number which now may not be, um, you know, in relation to, to, to the value of your assets, but that is the answer that you get. And as I said, many places in accounting, because of using cost, because of using fair value in some places, we end up with these mismatches. But that is the consequence of the current standard. Yes? Yeah. You keep getting the same question again, because... In our world, you have your liability is influenced by your return on the assets. Well, your discount rate, what is a discount rate? A discount rate, when you discount future cash flows, and you discount it by a specific rate, that's your assumption of your earnings that you will receive no. from those assets. Because why else do you discount it? But, to that's do what, what? but that's what I've been trying to emphasize is the standard prescribes the rate. Okay, no, okay let's, let's start there. If the standard prescribes your rate, yes. why don't I use the rate? Because that rate will influence my liability on the top line. Unfortunately, if that is the rate that I will earn, that will influence my liability on the top line. Because the two things are, unfortunately, they're mutually exclusive. They're the same thing. And now we want to place different values on exactly the same thing. Because if, if I earn the bottom line, my, my increases will be lower. But I say that, that discounting is simply to get to the present value. They could have said you must use 5%. They could have put a fixed rate in there that you must use 5%. It is simply to get to the present value. 
but it is inappropriate to then assume that that's the return on your assets when that is not the return on your assets because you haven't invested in government bonds. So that's why, I, that's why I've put the slide the way I have because that is the way the standard is drafted. Johan, to be a bit tongue-in-cheek, um, the best thing to, do, to then do is just invest everything in equities. Your liability will be absolutely negligible. Um, there's no balance sheet risk, and, and, and you're A4 away, so, yeah. Okay, all right, so as I've said and hopefully highlighted that the real thorny issue is that discount rate. Okay, and so yes, that obviously will be something which will be brought to the ISB's attention to say in some of these instances, not sure if we like the answer, but that is the current requirement. Okay, all right, then just a couple of other aspects in IS19, so what's in profit or loss versus OCI, member contributions, costs and surpluses. So in profit or loss, we have two elements, the service cost and the net interest on the net defined benefit liability or asset. And that net interest is calculated using that rate prescribed in IS-19. That's in your income statement. Then what sits in other comprehensive income, I say, which is not going to affect your bottom line and income statement, is everything else. And everything else we call remeasurements. So on your liability, you're going to have actuarial gains and losses going into OCI. For your plan assets, you take your actual return less what is included in that net interest on the net liability or net assets sitting in the income statement, and the balance goes to other comprehensive income. And also, if there are surpluses and you're limited, you have that asset ceiling, which limits the amount that you recognize, any changes in the asset ceiling all go to other comprehensive income. And there's no recycling. So what does that mean? You never, ever, put those items into profit or loss. So they never affect your earnings, ever, ever. Even once the plan is settled, the benefits are paid out, whatever, they just stay in, in OCI. Okay. All right, what do we do with member contributions? Previously the standard was silent, and I think practice varied. So if member contributions are linked to service, and if the amount is independent of the number of years of service, so it's, for example, a fixed percentage of their salary, regardless of how many years they've been there, it's 7.5%, that's what it is, then you reduce the current service cost in the year of the related service. So you don't account for these things otherwise. In the year in which the contribution comes in, it's going to reduce your current service. Otherwise, if it's linked to service, but the amount is not independent of the number of years of service, then you're going to treat it as a negative benefit and you have to attribute it over um, the life of the, um, of, of the, or the working life of, of the employee effectively, just like you do any, um, any other cost. And that will affect your liability measurement. 
If those contributions are required to make good losses, because maybe there's a deficit or something along those lines, well then that's going to affect the measurement of your net liability and it's part of your remeasurements which go to other comprehensive income. Okay. On the cost side, they've also clarified what we do with various costs. So any costs of managing plan assets are deducted from the actual return on plan assets, so they end up in other comprehensive income. And any other costs, admin costs, other than medical, um, you know, handling of medical claims, which would obviously deal with your post-retirement medical benefits, or so all other costs are expensed in profit or loss when incurred. Okay, so you're not going to project them and build them into your liability. You're just going to expense them as those costs are incurred. All right. Okay, to wrap up then, looking at surpluses. So let's assume we have an IS-19 gross liability of 100, fair value of plan assets 120. The trustees get to decide on the surplus apportionment. That's what the rules say. We have five sitting in the employer surplus account. How much is the net asset on the balance sheet? Definitely null, definitely five, definitely 20, or probably somewhere between five and 20. <clears throat> okay. All right, so the correct answer, 55% of you got it right, is probably somewhere between five and 20. Almost 30% went for definitely five. Okay, so if we move on, thank you. All right, so in terms of surpluses, right, you recognize it if the entity controls that benefit, and that would be if they're able to access the surplus, and if there are future benefits available to the entity. Now, how can the entity benefit? They can either benefit through a reduction in future contributions, and or, or refunds, either direct or indirect. Okay. Now, I strongly encourage you to have a look at that Psycho Financial Reporting Guide number three. It used to be AC504, and um, uh, when SA GARP effectively came to an end, um, Psycho issued it as, as a financial reporting guide. In here, there's a lot of guidance on determining how much that net asset can be. And it is not just the amount sitting in the employer surplus account. Yes, that may indicate what refund the entity might be able to get. That might relate to what legally you can use for a statutory contribution fund holiday. But in an IS-19 space, if we're sitting with it's called an IS-19 surplus of 20. The thinking is, is that you won't be required to fund at your IS-19 current service cost if you've got such a surplus. 
So you need to look at how to calculate the reduction in future contributions. And in that little block I said that's not the same as the statutory contribution fund holiday, which is you might be saying to me, well, you can only use five for that because that's all you've got in your employer surplus account. Okay, you need to look at the calculation of that reduction. And that's why the correct answer is it's somewhere between 5 and 20, because you may be able to reduce your, fund, your contributions below your IS-19 current service cost. Okay, so you need to have a look at that um, more closely. All right, and that brings me to the end of my session. So any more questions or any more comments? All right, well, oh, there's one. Goodness, I thought I was able to dodge it. <laughs> Neville from Absa Consultants, actually. On your first example, if I understand it, the, 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 you earn 15% and it's, you discovered 10 and that's the 19 year will lead to a loss. Yes. Now, what happens if you have many of those series so that you effectively sit with a tremendous liability? In other words, the, the discounting doesn't help you. In other words, it just gets worse. Uh, the 15% gets compounded. Do you see the difficulty? As I say, I, I understand we can see it, but as I say, the standard requires gross cash flows and then discounted at this rate that's prescribed. Yeah, but, then, but then I would imagine this discussion would hopefully bring a more uh, realistic picture on the 24th of August or so that you mentioned, because I, you, I, I don't think it's a helpful it doesn't help to throw rules at something just because it was done in 1990. I don't think that's... Well, right. unfortunately, that's what the current requirements are, so we can't change no, those. Sure. I, the I, I the purpose that. of the workshop is to raise these and see what the standard set of being the ISB is going to plan to do about them. And they might say, well, it works for most situations, so we're going to um, you know, leave it, or maybe for certain things they could change it. Who knows? But the point of that session is to raise all these issues. Okay. And the other one is, how do you ever know what the expected return on equities is going to be in the next 40 years? I mean, how do you, how do you... I thought you guys knew what the future... <laughs> I mean, I'm just amazed that, you could, that the picture would be that, that you'd actually... Take it for granted that you earn CPI plus whatever four equities indefinitely. It just doesn't sound right to me. Well, it's not indefinitely. It's for whatever the period. I mean, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's up to be 40 years or 60 years. Well, as I say, I thought you guys could forecast anything. <laughs> Kim, thank you very much for a, a wonderful presentation. I think um, it's quite clear to me that um, despite the fact that there's only one of you and 200 of us, uh, you seem to have won this debate. <laughs> um, What's also blatantly obvious is that uh, Arthur, Johan, they definitely will be at the session on the 24th of August. <laughs> um, but uh, we sincerely appreciate the commitment you've given us in terms of coming and presenting to us today. These are, these are issues that affect most of us. Um, we don't, as you can see, understand some of these points. Um, but we hope that uh, these sort of debates, these sort of presentations certainly enlighten us. I think just judging from the uh, sort of level of answers that uh, you asked of us today, we clearly don't know what we're doing. And so, so we look forward to, to that session on the 24th of August. And we thank you once again for your time today. Thanks very much. <laughs>